Behind the Rack, Episode 2, Honoring Those Who Serve. My guest today is good friend and fellow Air Force veteran, Paul Lascola. We were stationed together on two different occasions in the early 2000s, so it was really good to sit down and catch up on old times. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Please welcome to the show, Air Force veteran, Paul Lascola. Rolling. Um, Paul, welcome to, to Behind the Rack. Thank you, Brian. Been looking forward to, to coming over and talking to you. Heck yeah. This is good stuff. I appreciate you coming by. Thanks, man. Um, it seems like just yesterday, it was 2003, um, we were in Korea, so... Yeah, funny how time just kind of uh, goes by that quick. Yeah, and within a matter of minutes, it feels like we're right back there. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't that the truth? Man, yep. So what do you say? Let's see if we can do an episode. Sure. Sounds good. All right. Well, um, I'd like to start off with where were you born and what did your parents do? I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. My parents, they they were born and raised in Italy, and they immigrated uh, to, uh, to this country. You know, first it was my dad that came to this country when he was like 17 or 18 years old, uh, literally floated across the Atlantic Ocean. He didn't come by plane because he didn't have the money for a plane ticket <laughs> and uh, processed through, you know, New York City. Uh, where, where they came to was a small Italian community um, in St. Louis, so he was surrounded by, you know, other authentic, full-blooded Italians, but yeah. to be in St. Louis, you still had the exposure uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, to the American people, and right. so I, I don't think it took him too long to pick up the language, and uh, from that point, uh, I forget exactly what he did, you know, as far as jobs was concerned, mm-hmm. but I think it was from when he was, what, 23 to 26 is when he joined the military. Really? Yeah, so... Uh, he did the army, and um, so that's that's something that certainly helped him as far as getting his naturalization to, you know, become the citizen. Yeah. And um, so uh, he only did three years. I I, I don't remember nitty gritty details. Uh, I I think, as I recall, he he kind of had a thought or idea that that he might like to do it for a career mm-hmm. but uh yeah, well i guess in any branch of service there's the good and the bad right <laughs> uh, there there's uh, stuff that happens right that um i i guess for for him uh, there was just a few too many things that that i, I guess you know, uh, didn't sit well with him uh, for 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 whatever good there was, that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so he decided after three years that uh, you know that, that's it, time for him to get out and and try to you know move on to other things. But there, you know, he he there was his experience with the U.S. Yeah. military where he did that much. I think it was. Uh, I don't know if he was. If he was still in, or if he had just gotten out when he did a trip back to Italy, and that's when him and my mom met, 
Yeah. Okay. And so eventually from that, I got married and he brought her over here. And so I was born, hatched a couple, <laughs> a couple of years after that. And that was 1970. 1970. And so, yeah. So what was it like growing up in St. Louis in the 70s? They, I mean, I'm a little kid, so, you know, I might be oblivious to, to some of the, 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 the things that, uh, that, that kind of go on around you. I'm just mm -hmm. a little kid that, that, uh, my, my primary focus is to go hang out with my, my friends and, and, yeah. you know, play cowboys and Indians and whatever. But, you know, for as far as I can say from my perspective as a little kid, it was all good, you know? Any city you go to, there, there's, you know, there's good and there's bad. Um, I, I'd say, I'd say I had it pretty good. Mom and dad, you know, they, they weren't making bucket loads of money, but uh, uh, they, they, they managed well enough to, uh, to keep things good and keep things right between me and I got two younger brothers. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, growing up, you know, was was actually pretty decent in St. Louis through the 70s and and the 80s. So did you get into like big hair bands? Oh, dear 80s? God, yeah. What was your music of choice? Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, it's so easy to make fun of that stuff when we sit here and look yes. at that stuff now. Right. But man, that was actually still good, good stuff. You know, hey, Van Halen and ACDC, man. That's right. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was more than that, but son of a gun, jeez, uh, yeah, I was all about that. I I didn't dress up like that. Right. Mom and dad were not gonna have <laughs> me, you know, looking like uh, 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 Sammy Hagar uh, or <laughs> David Lee Roth. That was not happening. But uh, that was my music. You, you know? know, it it has stood the test of time. Yeah, jeez, you know. Uh, it, it's it it's always it's always good uh, you know call me the crusty old man it's just what what i hear coming out today right lots of it i'm just like nah not for me you know yeah so that was good stuff you know when i was 10 years old is when we moved out of the old neighborhood you know that there was predominantly somewhat tight-knit italian community and mo moved out of there because the house was so darn small. I mean, mm. it was a shotgun style, two bedroom, two bedroom house. And so it was me and my two brothers sharing one room. Oh, wow. And uh, so we had moved out and, you know, we went out because that that's that was like the city, mm -hmm. technically the city. And so we moved out into the suburbs where that's where actually my parents still are to this day. That was a, quite a bit of a change, but that worked out. It worked out still perfectly good. Had no problems uh, blending in with making new friends, and uh, yeah, so you know, it was still, it was still all good. You know, I'd say we, we, I mean, ups and downs with anybody's childhood, but right. overall, we had it pretty good. So, do you remember when you first started thinking about going to the military? Oh yeah. Ever since, you know, I was a little kid, I don't know exactly what age, you know, where, where, where I really had it cemented in my head. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when we're little kids, you know, we, we're always going out there playing cowboys and Indians and, you know, 
playing army and this and that. But I guess, I guess at some point in high school, you know, there was my dad that did his time in, in the army. I got my, uh, my one grandfather on my mom's side that, that he was career military, the Italian Navy. And uh, <laughs> one thing was that I found quite interesting was that uh, he is also a World War II veteran, was, he died some years ago, mm -hmm. World War II veteran in Italy, fought for Mussolini. <laughs> really? <laughs> fought for Mussolini, yes, against, uh, against the U.S. forces. Wow. Yep. So I I always found that to be like, wow, wow, I, I, you know, to try and process that in my head. Right. He even had a couple of stories about being caught by U.S. <laughs> being caught by U.S. forces. Uh, at least one instance, I think maybe twice, where he was captured. Uh, and and so, you know, here he is, you know, P.O.W., POW and <laughs> whether it happened once or twice, either way, he escaped. <laughs> Got escaped. out, escaped. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say he was released, but he escaped. Come on now. Bro busted out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm glad he did. Yeah, yeah. I am too. <laughs> I am too. But uh, you know, my grandfather, as well as Pretty much everybody else in mm -hmm. the country, they they at some point realized that they they were aligned with the wrong side. Right. Uh, you know he was he was loyal uh, to to Mussolini, but I guess things really started to click at some point, and and, and it was becoming very clear that for Mussolini to get himself aligned with uh, with the likes of Hitler. It, it it became pretty obvious. So at any rate, you know, I had that in my family. Mm -hmm. It's not like I had, you know, everybody under the sun, like some people that have, yeah, my dad, my five uncles, my <laughs> grandfather, my great-grandfather, you know. Right, back to the Civil War. Uh, yeah, I didn't have, you know, quite quite that much family history attached or connected to the military, but I had that much. And so from high school, uh, it started to cement in my head a little bit more. At first, I thought the Navy, you know, that kind of tapered off a little bit. You know, I ended up graduating high school, and, and for for most people, that, that would have just naturally stepped right into going to the recruiter's office out of high school, more or less. I really didn't do that exactly right away. Uh, I got a younger brother that... He tried. He did like I think a semester or something like that at the community college, and he's like, mm, "I'm not feeling this." And he's the one that went in the Marines, and did that for four years. But uh, I, 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 I gave it a little bit more of a go after high school with civilian life, and then at some point, that's where I met what was my first wife. Between the two of us, we didn't continue the college path, and we ended up getting married and then you know stepped into the regular full-time jobs right. we ended up working at the same place okay. uh, she was in the office and I was in the machine shop and that lasted for a bit until you know 
that thought and that feeling and that desire never, you know, it, it was always there. I, I think it was late 92, yeah, late 92 when, when we sat down and had a discussion and decided that, okay, I'm going to go on ahead and, and make this move to, to join the military. So there, go to the recruiter's office. I identified a specific AFSC okay. for signing the bottom line, and it was communications. And, but I also did delayed entry because at that time, you know, here we are with a house and needing the time to try and sell it and get all the rest of our life in order and lined up to try and make this transition. So I came to late entry, got the house sold. I left, processed through the oh, maps and left. Okay. Uh, so yeah. it was pretty good timing with the house. Yeah. Uh, another married couple that was basically our coworkers. They just happened to be in the market. So it worked out easy. And uh, yeah, it was um, May of 93 when uh, I, I left. So I was 23 years old. So I'm already, you know, a few years older compared to, yeah. I guess, what would be the majority. Mm -hmm. But we had quite the mix of people. You know, there was, yeah. there was a few in there that were about my age, a couple that were older. I was one of those that managed to stay kind of low-key. Okay. You know, if I'm alive 30 years from now... I might not remember my own name, but I'll remember <laughs> seeing Yerman Whitaker for crying out loud. Big dude, you know, he had to have his sleeves tailored because his arms were that big. He was a senior airman. We also had a buck sergeant because at that time there was still mm -hmm. the buck sergeants, not yeah. many, uh, but we had a buck sergeant. But for some reason, the way, the way we were set up, senior airman Whitaker was the primary TI and uh buck sergeant bennett i think bennett was his name uh was you know the the assistant yeah so you know he was the all of them i it just baffles me how how they come up with the stuff that they do so anyway so then you went to keesler keesler yeah base and biloxi and you're going into the communications field mm -hmm. yeah we had the old systems that were very dedicated systems where to send message traffic from one base to another, an individual would have to have a designated computer that you created your message, and you would save it to floppy disk. Okay. Old school. And then you would bring that floppy disk to the base comm center to send it to you know whatever destinations. Old school stuff, man. Old yeah. school stuff. A and at my first assignment from tech school, when we all picked up, you know, what our, what our first assignments were supposed to be, I picked mine up, and I was supposed to go to Yokota, Japan. There was a handful of us that, in my class that were destined to go to Yokota. You know, there was the bigger part of me that was like, oh, man, wow, right out yeah. the gate, going to Japan. I was all kinds of hyped. But then almost immediately, I realized that what at that time was my wife, that she was having a, a bit of a tough time being separated. What it was is that when I got the assignment, I was told that the way it was going to work is that they would send me there first by myself until I was to get base housing, but it wasn't available right away. And so at that time, it was, I think, an estimated two and a half to three months before I could secure base housing. And I thought to myself, oh, geez, 
you know, here's my wife that was falling apart because I was gone for just six weeks at basic right. training. She didn't even last for me to get through tech school. And I thought, dang, if I got to go halfway around the world for that long, not that I would have liked it, but I, I would have been okay, you know, for, for the opportunity to go to Japan. Yes. So <sighs> I thought, okay, this ain't going to work. I got to find somebody to swap assignments with. I can't believe I'm saying this, you know, oh, I'm thinking it. And so, you know, I, I start looking. There is one, one individual, you know, this girl that she was looking to do a swap to because. <laughs> oh, <laughs> just. I can only imagine where she uh, was stationed. Her orders were to Grand Forks, North Dakota. <laughs> And you did it. I I had to. She was the only wow. one that 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 North stepped da- up. North Dakota. Grand Forks, North Dakota. That's respectable of you to do that for your family. You know. So the funny part of it is that by that time, you know, all of us had had made contact with our assigned sponsors, and so we get to where we you know we accomplish this assignment swap, and I make my first call up to the shop there, Grand Forks, to let them know, hey, you know, there was an assignment swap and, and now I'm the one coming up. And <laughs> they're like, what? What happened to the girl? Ah, oh, no. We're going to kick your bleep when you get up here. <laughs> and of course, they were joking, you know, but, but it's... <laughs> And way to make a first impression. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And so, but you you know what? As it turns out, the coworkers that I had there and the friends that I made, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Funny how those kinds of things work, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, There's one in particular that I still keep in touch with all the way from freaking 1993. There's a few others that I haven't, which I'm going to try to reach out to. But it really turned out to be something good. The uh, minus 30-something degrees <laughs> in January wasn't, uh, yeah. From St. Louis, how much of a difference is that? I mean, St. Louis gets some pretty solid, what you would call winter weather. But holy crap, Grand Forks, North Dakota, son of a gun. You know, they were really big on preaching, you know, winter safety. In the winter months, make sure mm-hmm. you have this list of things in your car just in case you break down somewhere because mm-hmm. it's it's literally a matter of life and death which in fact there was one winter where a lieutenant that was driving between base and town which i think was about maybe 12 13 miles and sure enough he broke down and what did he do he got out of his car and started walking no way. this was nighttime if i remember right where already it's cold enough during the day and the nighttime, right. you know, multiplied. By the time he was found, he lost a few fingertips, a couple of his toes, some serious frostbite, and he wasn't too far from dead. So, yeah, pretty extreme. Just barely over three years. That was my first assignment. Some really good people. Worked old school, base comm center, where they did kind of start network communications in its infancy. I didn't get in on the shop there, but it was kind of interesting now to think back and, and, and see it from the very start and then comparing it to how it evolved 
to the point when I retired. So three years, and all of a sudden you get an assignment overseas? Germany, Ramstein. And boy, was I stoked for that. In fact, that was uh, where my dad was stationed. Uh, it was one of the Army bases that, well, that shut down like years mm -hmm. before. But, uh, you know, it was just really super exciting to, to get to get you know, an assignment to a place like Ramstein, Germany. Yeah. It was old school base comm center. They had two locations. There was the primary one in the comm squadron mm -hmm. that most people around the base would go to. And then I was at the other one, which was, I would go down this parking lot to the end of the parking lot where it was a dead end. What you saw from the ground was this small little building that couldn't have been, you know, more than a couple hundred square feet, very small little structure. And all it was was, you know, an elevator access and then a guard shack. From there, when, when you check in through the guard, you go down like <laughs> 50 feet or something like that. Yeah. And that's where they had, you know, like some sort of command post and they had some functionality. Yeah, that, that you know, the, the arrangements like, for example, Cheyenne Mountain, mm -hmm. you know, the whole nuclear bunker kind of thing, right? right? So that that was the comm center that I worked at. So each day you would be going. Yeah, down. which was, boy, I tell you what, when you had to work the 12-hour shifts, especially in the wintertime with limited daylight, you go in before the sun oh comes man. up. You don't come out until the sun has yeah. set. Yeah. That so can take a toll on you. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I wanted to jump back to your dad. What did he do in the army? Civil engineering. Really civil. Okay. Bridge builder, where you know they had the equipment that they would roll up to the side of a river, for okay. example, and then it'd be like the structure that that folds out, kind of like transformers. You know, the whole process. I think that it involves setting pontoons out in the water and then stretching this bridge structure across the river, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's close to your machinist when you were kinda in the sort machine of. shop. Kind of, sort okay. of, yeah, right. I wanted to check because my dad was on a tank crew oh. in Germany. Oh, so okay. Pretty cool, the, yeah, actually. I think the times over weren't overlapping the same. No, but um, he did, yeah, from 63 to 65 is when he was okay. there. Yeah. yeah, my dad was um, in the 70s. 70s, okay. But uh, they might have been on the same grounds. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay, so Germany. Yeah, so I did four years there, and that was that was pretty fun. I mean, duty-wise on the base, it got a bit rough. Kind of kicked my butt a little bit, the way things operated. But still, they're very good people uh, to work with. I bet that, that makes all the difference in the world. Right. It doesn't matter what base you go. If you get Thule Greenland, it could still be a good thing if you have the right people there to, to work with yeah, and agreed. work for. Sometimes the more austere the location the higher the morale absolutely just I'm because of yeah you know getting tight-knit with the people that you work right. with yeah so yeah so four years there it was uh good times going to oktoberfest a couple of years and the other you know the other festivals and such going to visit all the uh, the surrounding countries when i could i never had the nice car to go buzzing down the autobahn at 100 some odd miles an hour I always had the hoopties. Were you on base or there like was downtown? Yeah, there was a short period of time where we stayed on base. Not by my choice. It was something that... It could be intimidating. Yeah. To, to move, you know, the local economy. Uh, true, true, and I get that. 
Yeah, and I and so I didn't I didn't fight it too much when the wife wanted to be on base. I I understood it, mm-hmm. but I knew <laughs> in the back of my mind, you you know that 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 stairwell living uh, that that it can get old, mm-hmm. and sure enough, she had enough of it, and and we ended up off base, which to me was always you know it's always more interesting when you can immerse yourself right in, into those kinds of cultures. It was a good experience, very good experience. Anybody that uh, joins the military, if there is ever any chance to go take some time overseas, uh, everybody, I think, owes it to themselves to try. From that, came back stateside to Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, I'm doing some math, and I'm thinking that this is where we meet, and we start working together. (laughs) Yeah! When was your month? January of 2000. Wait, no, wait a second. 2001. Yeah, 2001. Because I did the Millennium New Year's celebration in Paris when I was in Germany. Oh, lucky That was you. easy to go to, yeah. My, my youngest brother came to visit. Yeah, the two of us went to Paris. That was insane. That was insane. <laughs> so, yeah, 2000, because I also did my TDY to Saudi, my first TDY to Saudi that year. You did in 2000? Yeah. Okay, out right. of Germany. Yeah. So that was that was easy. That was almost like a little vacation even. I don't even want to call it deployment. I was in the network shop there, which um, wasn't anything high-end, but I was in, yeah, sort of like the help desk function right. over there. Uh, Riyadh. Yeah, that was a three-month deal. I had the one special project that came up, basically to identify and map out all the Cat5 cable that was strung around. See, over time... The way things get done in deployed locations <laughs> is not the way you do, you know? And so as as things were getting built up, it was Escon Village. Anytime that somebody needed a network connection, just got a length of Cat5 cable, and uh, which is the closest building that has a repeater or a hub mm-hmm. or something, and tack one end of a Cat5 cable into that, and then out a window... Mm-hmm. to string Cat5 cable to the next building and inside that window to the computer that needed a connection. So after years of doing that, and, and so here's Cat5 strung around everywhere like clotheslines. Wow. And so there it became my task. It was actually me and, and another, see, I was still a senior airman then, and so it was a staffer tech from another shop that was tagged to kind of help me out a little bit. He lasted about a week and a half, maybe two weeks of going around, and the rest was up to me. I was hiking. This was all the summer months, and I'm sitting here hiking around Escon Village trying to identify and map, old school paper map, yeah. every single strand of Cat5 cable. No but I got it done, identified everything, and put it on a map because uh, I think there was uh, some sort of deal where eventually the army was going to take over Escon Village and they wanted that information. So uh, anyway, so yeah, that was summer 2000 and then come back to Ramstein and then I was just rolled right into my out processing more or less to leave that and end up in, yeah, off at <laughs> Air Force Base. So you went from North Dakota over to Germany and then back, back to Nebraska. Nebraska, Ooh. right. And that got cold there too. Yes, it did. Dang. So Bellevue, Nebraska, just outside of Omaha. Uh-huh. January of 2001 when I got there. And you got when? I think August of 2000. 
Yeah, you were already there by mm -hmm. a little bit. What was the shop? Alternate Missile Warning Systems Centers, where Cheyenne Mountain was our primary people. Now, did you get a chance to go out to Cheyenne Mountain? Yes. Tour? Okay, yes. Good. There was uh, four or five of us. Boy, I'm trying to remember the names now. Sorry, guys. Anybody, anybody out there that hears this podcast, I'm sorry. Won't um, that be cool though? If they're, if they're. Yeah, absolutely, to man. To figure absolutely. out how to get that, get it out. To yeah, them. for sure. So, okay. How about Sergeant Norris? Yes, I went with Sergeant Norris and then like three or four other guys, and we rented a minivan to go out. to go drive out there. Gotcha. Holy smokes! Whatever highway that is, that cuts through the state that is straight as an arrow yes. and nothing <laughs> on either side except corn wheat whatever oh my gosh it was like the road to nowhere the yeah. plains of nebraska yeah we, we ended up out there because we communicated with them on a regular basis you know the names and voices all the time and then finally get to meet them face to face so that was cool and to see the whole facility and how how it worked how it was mm -hmm. set up Took a little side trip to the Coors Brewery. Oh, okay. So that was fun. All those years that I lived in St. Louis and, and never once stepped in the Anheuser-Busch Brewery for their tour, that was fun to go check it all out. Um, and then, boy, I tell you what, then, when uh, September 11 hit, you know, everybody pretty much remembers where they were and what they were doing. I remember there was sort of a dead chunk of time where there really mm -hmm. wasn't anything going on in the shop. And there was, you know how there was the TV mounted up in the, the one corner of the, the, the floor there. Mm -hmm. So we walked over to turn the TV on just to, you know, flip through the channels and see what was, what was on. First thing showed the one tower with smoke coming out. And we're like, huh? You know, and flipping the other channels and they're all showing the same thing. Everybody, you know, if I remember right, that's, you know, doing that. And then we're just like, that's the Twin Towers. And uh, I was like, you're right. And then as we're sitting there watching, wondering what the heck, then that's when in real time, right. you know, we see with the camera focus, the second plane plowing into the other tower. And we, we just look at each other and we're like, oh, bleep. Yeah. You know, and... You know, immediately uh, we, we get everybody else's attention and, and we're just like, what do, what do we do? You know, I remember thinking to myself, son of a gun, how aggravated I was that, that we have this equipment here that is missile warning systems, right? Tracking missiles. But we were like a completely separated world from things like tracking planes, yeah, you know, and, and being privy to that kind of information, yeah. and, and I was so aggravated about, you know, what what, what the heck could we do? Even if we even if we had the kind of equipment, the, the, and the functionality to to track planes, well, what are we gonna do? Right. You know, the next thing I know, that building that we were in, locked tighter than. Oh, <laughs> I I can't. I don't think I could make an analogy without getting vulgar, but our building, right. the one where President Bush, mm -hmm. that came, he came to our building, and, and I was like, this is real. This is happening. This is I, nothing I would have imagined or expected in my wildest, you know, dreams. And uh, 
Boy, that was surreal. By the time I managed to get out, because at that time, I had my two kids with me mm -hmm. because I was getting divorced, and or I was already divorced, and it was agreed that, that I would keep them with me for that one particular school year while my ex was making her arrangements with her new husband to get reassigned stateside. And in the meantime, I would have our kids with me to do a school year at Offit instead right. of having to deal with the whole PCS thing. So I had them with me in, in sort of like a daycare slash kindergarten kind of a arrangement. And so, yeah, by the time I was allowed to leave, I exit the building and then I see, you know, guards posted all around the whole building. I go up to leave out the gate and there's a Humvee with, uh, you know, the 50 cal mounted and, and someone standing there on the turret. I'm like, this is Omaha, Nebraska. This, I mean, I was having a heck of a time processing all that, you know? Yeah, it changed everything. Yeah. There was no driving through the gate being waved on after that. Oh. And I never knew that the building that we were in had that sort of command center as a location for scenarios like that. It just blew my mind. So trying to track everybody, make sure everybody was accounted for. Right. Because I didn't have a cell phone. No, in right. 2000. Right. Oh, one. Yeah, it, it wasn't nearly as prevalent like today with phones. Mm -hmm. So dang, crazy times, dude. So that's where we got stationed together first. Yeah. Yep. And then I remember your next assignment. And where was that at? Camp Humphreys. The Air Force <laughs> Squadron located on an Army post. How would you describe your first time being in a combat comm unit? It was a welcome change for me. I felt like this is the kind of you know military mm -hmm. life that I was wanting to dive into and at least give it a try. Because within that unit is that sort of atmosphere and culture that was, you know, it's different from what you and I had there at Offutt what I had for the most part in Germany, what I had at Grand Forks, just different. And it's it was a very welcome thing for me to get that at that time. It's the sort of thing that I would have felt well enough to keep myself in that kind of environment and culture at least a longer time than just that one year. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were looking through those pictures and there was that one guy in our shop that he actually pulled the trigger on doing that blue to green to go army mm -hmm. again just to plug into that that sort of a environment and that culture that he felt was more his thing and uh, that extra bit you know with us making it on the op 4 team that's <coughs> one of the most fun parts for me being a part of the combat com squadron you had to go to a mob school yeah so an important part of mob school would be the enemy right Yep, I guess that was a dedicated team that at that time, at least when we were there and for all the time prior to when we got there, apparently, where you had to try out for it. And you and I, we made it, man. We got in it. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fun that we had playing the bad guys. Oh, my goodness. Good times, man. Yeah, sometimes it's not a fair fight when on our side we know what to do. We know yeah. exactly where to go. Right. And then if they haven't been in that situation before. Right. Plus, you know, when you're out there running around and you got your weapons, regardless of whether it's, you know, the standard M16s or, or whatever, they're all set up to fire blanks, right? So they can only be so realistic. When there's real legit hot lead flying, 
mm-hmm. through the air, that really changes everything. So, you know, there is that. But, um, yeah, I would say for me, Korea was, I mean, every assignment is good in its own way. But for me, Korea was, you know, top notch. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. So after Korea, I can't remember your follow on. Where you I went, went to Hawaii. Come on. Yep. Okay, so now the Air Force is making up for sending you to North Dakota. <laughs> sure. Germany, which is still cold. And then Very. to Nebraska. So that's a three-year deal. They're back to regular fixed network communications mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And I tell you what, though, you say Hawaii and it's like, wow, lucky you. But I would tell, and there's plenty of people that, that know this, uh, Hawaii, just like any other place, there's good and bad. There is, of course, all the things like you see on the vacation brochures and the calendars and so forth, and that's all very real, but there is also that part that is just very blah. I lived in three different houses while I was there, and the last one, there was the house next door to me where, you know, the guy that lived there, he was nice enough to talk to, but... I always saw him working in the front of the house. There wasn't any garage. It was just a driveway coming up to the front of the house. And I always saw him working on cars. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, here's a guy. You know, he's doing, always wrenching on on different cars, trying to make an extra buck working from home, fixing cars. And uh, one day, I come home for lunch. First thing I noticed was a guy with the local news channel. And I'm like, what's going on? And I was right next door to my, my house. What was really going on is that it was a bust. The cops caught this guy running a doggone chop shop. (laughs) How do you do that and get away with it for any length of time? (laughs) And so, you know, my point is, is that Hawaii, there's the very, very nice. Mm -hmm. And then there's the very, very not so nice. So um, that's where uh, I ended up meeting my second wife, which was a, quite the coincidence because we first met on my first deployment um the one where i went to saudi right for three months in the summer of 2000 that's where we had first met we both end up at that same rotation at escon village so we knew each other that chunk of time that was summer 2000 and so now here we are in the early part of 2004 they had this deal in at hickam for like an orientation and so there we were for this orientation and we didn't even cross paths or see each other until there was a bus ride to go around the island and it wasn't even until after that bus ride was done (laughs) all this time all day long doing this orientation and then finally to the end of the bus ride is when we crossed paths and she looked at me and I looked at her I'm like hey I know you (laughs) and so Shortly after that, we were hooked up. And then when it came to the end of our time there at Hickam, we said, okay, we want to stay together. And so we tried to see if we can just arrange the same assignment, you know, even though technically we weren't married. And sure enough, we both ended up assignments to go back to Korea, to Osan. And we thought, I mean, it doesn't work out better than that, except that she had her one kid with her that she couldn't get command sponsorship for. Because at that time, for most Air Force personnel, it was considered a remote tour. And so we decided, okay, let's just go on ahead and get married, drop the orders to Osan, and apply for um, joint spouse. So that's what we did. We applied for joint spouse, and 
we thought, well, we'd like to stay overseas, get one more overseas assignment at least before getting brought back stateside. Mm -hmm. And for as much as we tried, we kept getting denied. And every time we turn around, there, there was something going on in the system that was bringing us here to Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, that's what ended up happening is that we got this joint spouse assignment to come here to Montgomery. And I tell you what, we came kicking and screaming. <laughs> you know, of all the places around the world, we end up here in Montgomery, Alabama. So here I am now, still retired since 2013, while I was on terminal leave. Picked up a contract job working in the exact same office. I was doing project management, doing the same work in the same office, working with the same people. So that probably helped with the transition, not to be too much of a drastic change. True. Very true. So that part was easy enough. But it was a very short-term contract, I think like just five or six months. It wasn't long-term. It was just for one specific project to do network installations, upgrading old equipment around various bases around the globe. So, you know, that was all good and well. That's what got me to go back to Korea. I was part of a three-man team to go to a couple of bases in Korea to do some equipment upgrades and I took that opportunity to go back to Camp Humphreys and go check it out and uh, holy crap how much it changed and you'll see because you said you're going you're, yeah, you're, you're slotted to go mm -hmm. right you need to go to the hump and check it out yeah I remember you sent pictures yeah uh, you right. me some pictures and our old dorm that was just completely vacant not being used just things around post Dude, when we were there, like I said, remote assignments, mm -hmm. very few slots that were authorized for family members. I went back and there's daycare centers, you know, and spouses walking their kids in strollers. Four, five, six story barracks buildings or, or I don't know if they were barracks or if they were family housing. It was just really something to see. Uh, I was just completely discombobulated. You know, knowing what it was like from when we were there earlier versus what I saw in 2013. You got to go. You'll see. I was just happy to see the TriTac where we worked and, and then just trying to, from that pinpoint, to try and see all around me. Even the road itself is mm -hmm. different now. Part of the roadway as we knew it is still there, but just cut off mm -hmm. and it dead ends into just nothing. And then a new road that was paved down all these kinds of details that was just so confusing. If you get there, man, uh, you, you got to go check it out. So. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And then plus, uh, how different right outside the base with all the clubs and the bars. A lot of them just boarded up, completely shut down because, of, you know, the whole thing with the human trafficking. Right. So it's more of a family. Yes. I think I remember sending you a picture where there was still the IDK club. Oh, was it still there? That was still there, and it looked like, you know, it wasn't all closed up like a lot of the other ones. So that I looked at it, I'm like, okay, at least this is still in business. So I was glad to see that. It was about the size of this room, wasn't it? It was tiny. <laughs> and we would pack in like, I don't know, 30 people or something like that. And then at the end of that bar, I remember where there was like, you know, when you could go to any of these souvenir shops and they have the, what is that bell, that Korean bell with the little mm -hmm. swinging hammer yes. deal that, that you can, yeah. She had one of those 
there at the end of the bar and and the rule was that for anyone who would go ring the bell they would buy a round of soju shots that was the the, you know the standing rule you go ring the bell and (laughs) and i remember a few times where i would go and i'd hang out and i'm like okay just hang tight and i would wait until i'd see where the place was pretty much just Jam, jam, full. I, I mean, it would not be allowed anywhere here in the United States for, you know, number of personnel allowed in one space. But you know, in Korea, anything goes. And I would wait for that, and then I would, I would squeeze my way on over <laughs> to where, you know, this bell was sitting at the end of the bar, and then just, ding, <laughs> and then one big collective, yeah. <laughs> from everybody <laughs> and, and i you know i'd be the one to buy a round of soju shots for for everybody which was easy because you know it's just super cheap you know mm-hmm. simple soju with the whatever flavor of kool-aid right yeah so good times man good times there and, and so i had that chance to go back through uh, that short period of a contractor and, and having that project uh, but after that you know, as far as anything military related, that that ended up being the end. I always had that thought in my in the back of my mind, you know, that I liked before I came in the Air Force, the whole thing of doing machine shop work, metalworking, mm-hmm. machine shop type work. Yeah. And so um, there's the local community technical college here in town that has that program. You know, they have things like that, diesel mechanics, welding, the machinist program, and some various other things like that. So I I decided, you know, I'd like to kind of pursue something more along those lines again. Mm -hmm. And so there, I signed up, and I I ended up going through that whole program. And that, you know, that that felt good. That felt right, something like I I wanted to get back to. Complete departure from my high-tech world of network communications in the Air Force, mm-hmm. uh, I would say that it is an extremely good job to get into, you know, the, the training that you get and the things that you can do. It, it is very much a good job to get into. And then especially military people that have security clearances, geez, that in right. itself is worth its weight in gold. I mean, I managed to keep a, a TS security clearance for my entire military career tell you what i i could have stepped into any number of jobs with the time in the field and having that clearance but i felt like i've had enough of doing that uh you know sitting in front of the computer all day long feeling like dilbert you know (laughs) dilbert comic strip cube farm and then those times like at ramstein working in that comm center you know four or five stories down, you know, in that bunker kind of environment, working 12-hour shifts. It sounds cool and all, but it kind of wears on you after a while. So, yeah, I ended up complete departure from all of that when when I got out. You know, it it sounds like with your dad being a civil engineer Mm -hmm. and you worked in machine shop Mm -hmm. before the Air Force, that it's maybe you're like you're going back to what feels yeah. right. I, yeah. I think that's good. It's just kind of what ticked in my head a little bit better. So that was that. But I tell you what, I guess all in all, I didn't get to do nearly as much as, as some other people in the military, the super exciting, high-end, high-speed stuff. And I think about that sometimes, you know, the different track that I could have done. In basic training, I remember 
there was my flight and my brother flight that we were gathered in a room and uh there was one each guys from pararescue and combat control which is the special forces for the air force that were there to give their spiel about what they were about and if there was any of us that had an inclination to you know to get in on it that was the opportunity that right. moment at that time during basic training here's your here's your chance and in my mind i'm like oh man this 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 is what yeah. you know got my blood flowing an alternate course in life that that i passed up and then you know in korea where I ended up having a conversation with a warrant officer because we had the Chinook oh, okay. helicopters. You remember, we had the Chinook. It was right across, basically right across the street from our, our compound that was the flight line. Mm-hmm. And so I got to talking with a warrant officer that was a pilot for those Chinooks. And he let it known to me that the door is wide open in the Army mm. for the warrant officer program to do that. And at that time, I was divorced. I wasn't attached to anybody or anything and, and for whatever reason that I can't think of right now I, I, I didn't I didn't try so you know just big fat blah on that and you know those kinds of things you know the exciting high speed things that you can do in the military and I didn't pull the trigger on any of those um, but everything for a reason you know I didn't do that bit from basic training and so things went the way they went where the easiest thing to point to is having my two kids right. which I didn't at that time mm-hmm. and who knows how it would have worked out so I can't be so angry or regretful because right. I got I got those two kids me not pulling the trigger on that warrant officer program from when I was in Korea I landed in you know Hickam where I met, well, again, my now soon-to-be ex. Um, but my point is, is that with her, you know, she had her daughter there already with her. And right. in that time, she became my daughter. You know, in my mind, she, you know, she is my girl. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can't have an ounce of uh, resentment or regret just simply because of that. That's right, man. And over the next 30 years, I think all those things are going to multiply. Sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Right now, I have a grandson. Do you? <laughs> grandpa. I am a grandpa for the last Congratulations. four years, five years, five years. Yeah. What do you go by? D- well, you know, in Italian, grandpa is, is nonno. N-O-N-N-O. Nonno. No, no. Grandma's nonna. Okay. You know, in, in those languages, the O's and the A's, masculine, feminine, okay. and all of that. Right. Nonna and nonna. So, yeah, uh, that was weird, becoming, you know, a grandpa at forty-something years old. But um, you know, it's uh, altogether, I guess, what I would say is that to have decided to pull the trigger and, and go into the military. There is absolutely zero regrets. I would do it all over again a hundred times. All of us that wore a uniform in some way, shape, or form, we all served our country. And uh, 
you know, for me, I did one bit there at, in Saudi. I had two other deployments. Uh, the most, the last one was to Kuwait. And so, you know, there was mostly Air Force, but there was some interaction with Army, I think a couple of Navy, a couple of Marines. But <coughs> the one, you know, that was quite different for me was Afghanistan. Um, boy, what a cluster that was. Just, oh my gosh, what a cluster that was. I got sent to Kabul, and um, that was the most exposure for me. I mean, aside from Korea, being on an army post, but in, you know, in a deployed setting like that, the primary body of personnel where I went, Camp Phoenix, was uh, an Army National Guard unit. Um, and then there was a presence of naturally the Marines and the Navy. So to interact, y you know, with the, with the different services uh, in that context just adds a lot to your experiences and your life as a whole. I mean, as frustrated as I was about certain things, um, being over there, um, yeah bad things that that will stick to me for the rest of my life um but you know not just the u.s forces but the coalition too see and there was a lot of that there a and so my respect and my thoughts extend to the foreign nations y you know when memorial day rolls around <clears throat> you know first and foremost you know my mind is full just flooded with the thoughts of, of our fallen brothers and sisters. But in my mind, I don't stop there. I think about the coalition forces that um, didn't make it back home alive. Absolutely. So it's uh, um, to be a veteran, it's actually something special. So thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Oh, geez. Thank you so very much for this. Is there anyone you would like to dedicate your podcast to? Oh, goodness. I would say my kids, you know, because it's never easy for kids to have their moms and dads coming and going right? and, and to be gone for, you know, birthdays and Christmases mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. So to my kids, dedicate this to them. And then, you know, again, to all the other veterans out there, I salute all of you. Yeah, that's awesome. it. Awesome. Yep. Well, Paul, from one vet to another, thanks for your service, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Roger that. Thanks, Brian. It was an honor to serve with you. Awesome. So, thank Likewise. you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I want to leave you with the Behind the Rack Veterans Pledge. If you know someone in your life that needs to hear it, please pass it on. I believe, as a veteran, I am part of an exclusive community, and the best exclusive communities are the ones you had to do something to be a part of, not pay to get in. I believe, as a veteran, my military experience brings value to the civilian world. I realize the parts of my service that may seem ordinary to me seem extraordinary to others. And I believe, as a veteran, I am on a hero's journey and the things I've learned during service can bring value
purpose and meaning to my life after service.